Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I am Evelyn Marcus. And I am Phyllis Zimbler-Miller. The veneer of civilization is paper thin. We are its guardians and we can never rest. These are the words of the late Congressman Tom Lantos, a Holocaust survivor who was a leading advocate for human rights in the world. Today, we have the honor to talk with his daughter, Katrina Lantos-Sweat. Katrina is the president of the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice, established in 2008 to continue the legacy of her father. She teaches human rights and American foreign policy at Tufts University, and she's also the co-chair of the International Religious Freedom Summit. Katrina, welcome. We are honored to have you as our guest. Thank you both so much. The honor is really mine to, to be with you, and I'm looking forward to this next half hour that we'll spend together. So, do we... so let's start at sort of the beginning. Could you share with us your father's Holocaust story, please? Yes. So my father, who was born in 1928, was... Um, a very gifted, very talented, very brilliant young Hungarian patriot. He loved his country deeply. And like many other Hungarian Jews, um, they sort of believed and hoped that the horrors that they knew were taking place all around them in Europe might pass them by. As um, some of your listeners may recall, Hungary was... Um, somewhat reluctant German ally in the Second World War. And although their leader, um, Admiral Horty, was by no means a good guy, there was still some measure of protection for the Hungarian Jews prior to the occupation of Hungary by the Germans. My mother- that, Could you share that date? Yes, um, it was March 19th, 1944. Um, and actually, my mother, um, also a Holocaust survivor, also Hungarian, who lives with me and is now um, getting close to 93 years old, often will say to me in very powerful words as we, you know, have a meal together or whatever, that that was the day her life and all of their lives sort of ended and a new, much more frightening life began. So uh, my father, um, along with... Um, of course, uh, you know, all the other young Hungarian and not so young Hungarian Jewish men was initially taken away to the slave labor camps. Again, um, could you tell us when is this? Well, you know, I can't tell you the precise date when he was first sent to slave labor camp, but um, it was during this 1943-44 period. Um, conditions there were brutal. Um, many, many died in those camps. But uh, after um, the, the German occupation, of course, my father understood that things would never again be the same. He made several attempts to escape, um, was um, caught and, and badly beaten on mul multiple occasions, but he finally was able to escape from this slave labor camp. And he made his way back to Budapest, um, where he was able to find refuge in a so-called safe house that had been uh, set up by Raoul Wallenberg. Now, Raoul Wallenberg, for your listeners, was this incredible 
Swede. Um, we call him the greatest humanitarian of the Second World War. He came from an unbelievably wealthy and powerful Swedish family. The Wallenbergs were like the Rockefellers in the United States. I mean, just renowned for their wealth, their power, everything. And Wallenberg was part they of They weren't Jewish. They were not Jewish. They were Protestant. But Wallenberg um, felt a call that he had to do something as this horror was in, unfolding in, in Europe. And um, so he volunteered um, as part of the Swedish diplomatic legation to go to Hungary with funding from our War Refugee Board um, for one mission. And that was after the occupation to try and save as many of the Hungarian Jews as he could. You mean and, with funding from the United States? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. There was funding from our American War Refugee Board. And this becomes relevant a, a little bit later in my dad's story. So Wallenberg was, as I say, one of the great heroes of the Holocaust and has been credited with perhaps saving as many as 100,000 innocent Jewish lives. One of the things he did was he rented um, buildings around Budapest, hung the Swedish flag from them, put up a sign saying this property is part of the Swedish legation under the protection of the royal Swedish government. Now, there's a doctrine in international law called um, extraterritoriality. And what it basically means, and a lot of your listeners will have a vague sense of this um, because of other um, news stories they've heard in the past. That is that there's kind of a fiction that the American embassy or the British embassy or the Israeli embassy in any other country, that that little piece of land is actually American territory or Israeli territory or British territory or Spanish territory. And as such, it is um, respected as a general rule by the host country so that, you know, they will not send their police in. And that's why you have instances where somebody trying to seek asylum will enter the embassy of a friendly country because law enforcement, you know, Russian police can't chase them into that embassy. And over the course, especially of the Cold War, that happened a lot. People managing to get into the American embassy and then claiming asylum and, and being safe as long as they stayed within those confines. So what well, happened in Budapest? Well, Wallenberg tried to extend this protection to these buildings he rented. Of course, it was by no means, you know, safe house has to be put in quotation marks because when the quota of um, Jews for deportation was insufficient, the Nazis would raid them and take them off. And he would, if he caught word of it, rush there to try and save them. But my father, that's where he found a measure of refuge. And, you know, he was blonde, he was blue eyed in a stolen Arrow Cross uniform. The Arrow Cross were the Hungarian native-born equivalent of the SS. And most Hungarian Jews will tell you they were worse than the SS, which is saying something. Um, but in a stolen Aerocross uniform, he could serve as kind of a courier in the underground. He had some very close calls, um, and some of them are really very dramatic. But, but he was able to survive in this safe house until the Russian... Uh, you know, the Russians drove the Nazis out um, late in 1945 or early in 1945 and late 1944-45. I mean, it was, again, very touch and go um, because, uh, you know, they were under constant bombardment and it was just, 
you know, by the grace of God that the bombs which landed around and, and some of them on their building didn't kill them all. But he did survive. Um, and uh, after the war, my father won a single scholarship that was being offered by B'nai B'rith to come and study in the United States. This was a few years later in 1948. So he had started his academic, his graduate studies in Hungary. He originally had planned to be a doctor, started medical school, but on the first um, day of medical school, when they put the cadaver in front of him and said, okay, you know, we're going, he decided that politics and economics was more <laughs> his thing. Um, and, uh, but he, um, you know, he stayed alive by hook or by crook because those early years afterwards, starvation was widespread. And the other great, great risk that survivors faced was literally being snatched off the street by the Soviet occupying forces and shipped off to the Soviet Union to rebuild Russia. I mean, you know, if we recall, Russia was devastated as a result of the war, lost untold millions, and they were not at all reluctant to just grab whatever, you know, functional, relatively young um males they could and and take them off to to Russia to rebuild. So, you know, there were some very close calls there. But in 1948, my father um, came on this scholarship to study at the University of Washington. And that's sort of when the next part of his life began. So, and, yeah. No, so go right ahead. ahead. So he, he went to America. He, 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 yes, he there. came. You met your mother there, is that correct? Oh, no, no. They had been childhood sweethearts in Hungary. In fact, it's a very charming story. You know, my my mother and father used to joke that they actually had an arranged marriage because um, my mother was the only daughter of a, a very affluent and quite prominent Jewish family in Budapest. Um, her father owned the largest jewelry store in all of Hungary. And one day, as the family lore goes, my father went into the store to buy a birthday gift for his mother. He had saved a little money and wanted to get her a gift. And my grandmother, who ran the store, sort of saw this handsome young boy. I mean, he probably wasn't more than 12, maybe at the time, 11 or 12, come into the store. And she decided to take care of that customer him herself was quite smitten with him, invited him to come over for, you know, Shabbat um, to have it with their family. And uh, and she and my my mother's father sort of agreed amongst them that this was the one they wanted for their daughter. So their friendship began as young children and um, and, you know, survived all these incredible things that they endure. My mother and, and her mother um, also, you know, barely escaped with their lives, but they were actually able to get out of Hungary on um, false Portuguese passports. The other thing Wallenberg had done was print tens and tens of thousands of these so-called Schutzpasses, um, which were basically a document that said the bearer of the document had been given um, permission to emigrate to Sweden and was under the protection of the Swedish government. And he 
got other members of the diplomatic corps to join him in providing either passports or some kinds of documents that in some cases people could use to to survive um incredible yeah, yeah. it's incredible what what Raoul Wallenberg did and it is. it's a whole story about what happened to him yeah but, but anyway but so just to finish the my parents story yeah. so my mother and her mother ended up after the war in Paris and she was just a very young girl at that time maybe 14 15 but she was bound and determined to go back and see who was still alive from the family. So she made her way alone as a young girl across war-torn Europe, made her way back to Budapest, found one uncle alive, um, and uh, and found my father among the ruins. And and you know, and they they reconnected and and uh, and it was a great love affair. So so he came first to the United States and she joined him. Um, a couple of years later, and they were and married in 1950. How did he end in Congress? Well, that's um, that's also a very improbable story. So he had been a professor of economics. He had established a study abroad program for the California State University system. He had um, been an advisor to other political figures. He had been an advisor to Senator Frank Church of Idaho, and then he became the top foreign policy advisor to Senator Joe Biden of Delaware, now President Joe Biden. And um, during the time when my father was working for Senator Biden, our local congressman from our home area in California, a guy by the name of Leo Ryan, was assassinated in an absolutely bizarre situation down at Jonestown. You know, you may remember. Oh, I do. It was a tragic, bizarre cult. It down was in the very in, late 70s. It, that's right, the very late 70s. And, um, and uh, you know, about a thousand people died in this sort of suicide pact in, the, in this um, cult at Jonestown, but Leo Ryan, the guy who had been our congressman, had gone down because some of his constituents' children were part of this cult, and he kind of went down at their request to see what was going on, maybe try and rescue these kids, killed on an airstrip there. I remember that story very clearly. It was a shocking, shocking thing. So in the aftermath of that, there was a special election to fill his seat, and in what had traditionally been a Democratic seat, a Republican kind of snuck in um, in this divided sort of political uh, um, scramble and was elected to Congress. And my father used to sort of jokingly say that he was the only virgin in town because he had been in D.C. during this special election where everybody had lined up on different sides in what had been a pretty bitter primary battle. And so he decided to throw his hat in the ring. And this was in 1980. He ran for Congress, again, for your listeners and even those abroad, you may recall, 1980 was the year of the Reagan landslide when Ronald Reagan was swept into office on, I think, a 49-state landslide. He beat um, the incumbent president, Jimmy Carter. And that year, there were only two um, unindicted Republicans who were defeated for re-election. And one of those races was my father's race. So it was a pretty remarkable, miraculous victory in a year that was not um, 
that was not favorable for Democratic candidates by any means. But he, so he was elected first in 1980 and went on to serve for almost three decades. But with his election, he became the first and of course, now we know the only Holocaust survivor ever to serve in the United States Congress because that generation is leaving, of course, the scene. And that background and that history profoundly impacted almost every aspect of his service in Congress um, because it, I think it put you know, the usual political battles into a somewhat more consequential context for him. You know, we fight over taxes and environmental regulations and minimum wage and, um, you know, many, many important political arguments and disagreements that we have. But for my father, he always saw the the fundamental purpose of his service in Congress as being to stand up for, for two things, for democracy um, and, and all that it implies, rule of law and protection of rights and all of that. And the second was to stand up for the fundamental human rights of all people, especially those um, who were persecuted, who were excluded, who were targeted. So he um, he founded the Congressional Human Rights Caucus, which really became the prime vehicle in the Congress for bringing members of Congress together around a shared commitment to fighting for human rights and justice. Um, and, uh, and when he passed away, it was reconstituted by then Speaker Pelosi as the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission of the US Congress in recognition of the sort of singular role my dad had played as I think the Congress's most eloquent voice on behalf of human rights. Yes, and remarkable and and a voice that uh, was also heard abroad. I remember still living in the Netherlands where I'm from and reading in the newspaper about, I don't remember what was, uh, about Congressman Tom Lantos speaking out in such a principled way yes, uh, that was remarkable and it made a big impression on me. So how, how did your father advocate for, um, uh, how did he, how did he advocate, speak up against anti-Semitism in Congress? Well, it, you know, that was a, a constant concern and focus for him. And two things come to mind. Um, one is maybe only tangentially related to anti-Semitism, but pretty profoundly connected. His very, very first act as a member of Congress was to introduce legislation to make Raoul Wallenberg, the great hero of the Holocaust who had rescued him, an honorary US citizen. Now, he did this for multiple purposes. At that time, we believed that there might still be a small possibility that Wallenberg was still alive in the Soviet gulag. Um, he was kidnapped by the Russians after they occupied mm -hmm. Hungary. They viewed him as a threat. They knew he was supported by the United States. And, you know, the Cold War battle lines were already being drawn and he disappeared into the gulag and and there were persistent rumors that came out of russia 
from freed prisoners saying, hey, you know, when I was there, I met a guy who said my only crime was saving Jews. I'm a Swede. I'm Wallenberg. Tell people out there I'm still alive. So my father hoped that if Wallenberg was alive, if he was granted U.S. citizenship, it would give our country that had a lot more determination, number one, and clout, number two, than Sweden, to try and, and advocate and, and lobby and work for his release. The second was my father wanted to honor both Wallenberg with U.S. citizenship, but to honor the United States, too, by more closely associating us with the rescue, the greatest rescue effort of the Second World War. You remember I mentioned that he had received some funding from the War Refugee yes. Board. So that created, in a way, a rational link. And he became, it was adopted and signed into law by President Reagan. And Wallenberg became only the second man in U.S. history at that time to be so honored. And the first was Winston Churchill. <laughs> Which is pretty remarkable. And, you know, yes. of course, Winston Churchill's mother was an American. Yes. So there was a little more of a of a logical, if you will, connection there. So that was that was important not only to honor Wallenberg, but to, to make this point that, you know, those who stood up against the most horrific manifestation of Jew hatred in human history deserved the highest honor and the highest recognition that we could offer. But there were, of course, many, many other examples over the course of his um, service in Congress. Maybe one of the most significant and, and long lasting is that my father was the chief um, sponsor and mover of the legislation that created the post of the special envoy to combat oh, okay. anti-Semitism, which of course is um, a really quite important post within the State Department. When was uh, this? This, well, our current um, holder is, oh gosh, um, now you're going to put me on the spot. It's the- Deborah Lipstadt. Yes, yes, thank you. Ambassador Lipstadt, who um, is uh, a very distinguished, not only scholar, but became- very well known because she uh, was um, the one who successfully defended against um, the the charge of um, of slander in Great Britain um, when she was sued by this uh, Holocaust denying David Irving. Exactly, David Irving, and that was a big case. You know, there was a a movie that was made yes. about it that you've probably seen. So she's our current ambassador um, at large, and and uh, you know, doing I think a, a really good job. Elon Carr was the predecessor, also excellent, also did a very very good job. Um, but that office, Hannah Rosenthal, um, another um, distinguished former ambassador, special envoy. Uh, that office was um, an initiative of my father's, and uh, and you know he and 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 he you know called for an annual report and all of these things to make sure that combating anti-Semitism remained a key focus of U.S. foreign policy. Right. Yeah. That's that. That's amazing. Amazing. And let's can we go to what you're doing today? What the Lantos Foundation is doing today? Absolutely. Well. You know, every day, ladies, I must say, 
I feel a significant responsibility on my shoulders because my father to me was in so many ways a larger than life figure. And, you know, I'm very happy to share with your listeners and your viewers that um, I was very fortunate because sometimes people, men and women who do a lot of great and important things out in the world aren't necessarily all that great in in their family lives. And my father was a fantastic father. You know, he was so wonderful, so devoted to his two daughters and so devoted to his many grandchildren. And so, you know, it's a wonderful sense of both responsibility and privilege to me to try and carry on um, his legacy. And we are involved in a, a large number of initiatives. And I'm actually going to put on my glasses because I I didn't want to, you know, for I won't cover everything, but I wanted to, you know, make sure I touched on some of the key things. So I'm going to put on my glasses um, just so I can, can make sure I, I hit on a lot of them. We are involved um, in a number of very important rule of law initiatives. Um, so we believe that that supporting international rule of law is one of the key ways in which we support democracy and defend human rights. And so we are part of really a global movement to strengthen the global Magnitsky sanctions regime. We work very closely with Bill Browder, who you may know who he is. He was um, the, the gentleman who wrote the book, um, uh, Red Notice and Freezing Order, which describes his, um, you know, Putin's attempts to throw him in jail and his fight for justice for his young lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, who was killed in Soviet custody. And Bill Browder started this global Magnitsky movement, which uh, attempts to kind of put teeth in the human rights movement by providing a mechanism for sanctioning directly those individuals involved in the denial of human rights in various countries around the world. And that's a project and an initiative that we've been very involved in. We are um, very involved in advocating for prisoners of conscience. And just this past year, we were most gratified when we were kind of the one of the lead human rights organizations that led the fight for the release and the freedom of Paul Rusesa Bagina, the hero of Hotel Rwanda, the man who had saved 1,200 um, Tutsis during the uh, Rwandan genocide and who was kidnapped by the current dictator of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, taken to Rwanda against his will, put on trial in a show trial. We were incredibly proud and and gratified to be part of the team that helped win his release. And we are now advocating for um, uh, two of the high-profile prisoners of conscience in Hong Kong, uh, uh, Jimmy Lai and uh, Joshua Wong. We have, my father sort of started out his career as a professor and was always an educator. And so one of the early programs we started was the Lantos Congressional Fellows, where every year we bring a group of very high level, high caliber um, graduate level students um, from Europe. We've had them from Holland, from Denmark, from France, from Germany, from Scotland, um, <laughs> from a variety of countries, from Great Britain. We bring them to the United States to do a four to five month fellowship in congressional offices, learning of course about our system of government, um, and uh, the transatlantic relationship, but with a focus and special programming um, dealing with human rights work. Um, and that program is now, 
gosh, you know, probably in its 12th or 13th year. Um, every year we have an activist artist scholarship competition that we run um, for young high school uh, juniors and seniors where they can earn scholarships for college, either by creating an original piece of activist art, um, dealing with some human rights issue, or by writing an essay about uh, a high profile activist artist whose work has impacted them. Um, one of our longest standing collaborations has been with Memory, the Middle East Media Research Institute, which is a remarkable organization that sort of bridges the language gap mm -hmm. between the Western world and the Arabic and Pashto speaking world. Memory, memory. Exactly, M-E-M-R-I, memory. Um, that highlights and sort of brings to the attention of policymakers, government leaders, the media, et cetera, the rampant saturation of overt hate-filled anti-Semitism in many, many of these areas of the world. We collaborate with them on the Lantos Archives on Anti-Semitism and Holocaust Denial, which every year on an ongoing basis are um, curated and updated and made current. Um, and, and this archive is available um, for you know, a, a huge range of, of users um, around the world. We initiated um, some years ago, and we are looking at reviving an initiative that we call the Solidarity Sabbath. And it's now we think needed more than ever um, because, you know, when we, when we initially launched it some years ago, this was during the Obama administration, we were concerned about the levels of rising anti-Semitism then and quite honestly it almost looks like child's play compared to what's going on now it's just so shocking and so disturbing but when we initially launched the solidarity sabbath the idea was again to raise raise consciousness and build solidarity by getting government leaders in as many countries as possible to attend sabbath services in their home community on the same day or in the same month um, as a gesture of solidarity with their Jewish community. We were very excited because we got President Obama, the first president um, since I think Ulysses S. Grant, you know, um, after the Civil War, to attend Sabbath services at a synagogue. Yes. I take it you mean inviting not just Jews, but non-Jews to attend this event. Especially non-Jews. Okay, just wanted Especially. to clarify. <laughs> exactly, because we sort of want to to build that that solidarity and build that knowledge and build that friendship and that sense of community. So it was quite a quite an exciting thing when President Obama attended um, Sabbath services at uh, at a, a synagogue in Washington, DC, specifically in acknowledgement of the Solidarity Sabbath. But as I say, we are looking at, at renewing this. And, and the first year we did it, I think we got leaders from 36 different countries wow. to participate. Some of them attended services, some of them issued statements, some of them hosted a Sabbath dinner at their homes. It was a wide, you know, we gave them sort of a menu of options, um, things that they could do. Um, and uh, and we would like to, to renew that effort because I think the spirit is there. I think we're gonna focus very much on the United States this year um, because Unlike in the past, um, 
but we are seeing uh, this sort of open hatred, open expression of, of uh, you know, genocidal Jew hatred right here in our country, right here on our college campuses, in our very best academic institutions. So I think um, our focus on, on the next round of Solidarity Sabbath will be, fr quite frankly, um, closer to home. We helped organize a major conference on anti-Semitism in collaboration with the Tom Lantos Institute, which is a human rights organization based, excuse me, in Budapest, Hungary. And it was really quite historic because it was um, the first time really in a public setting that we got the Hungarian government at the highest official levels to acknowledge Hungary's complicity wow. in the genocide of Hungarian Jews. You know, Hungary had always sort of sought to avoid responsibility, moral responsibility and moral culpability because they said, well, we were occupied, you know, until we were occupied, this didn't happen. But the, the tragic facts are that the 500,000 some Jews of Hungary who were murdered, sent to their deaths in Auschwitz and murdered in other uh, ways, um, it took place in the shortest period of time of any targeted Jewish population in all of the Holocaust. And that was only possible with the very willing cooperation of the Hungarian people and the Hungarian government. And I would like to add, it was near the end of the war when it was clear to most people that the Nazis were going to be defeated. And yet the Hungarians insisted. And there's, I was just in Budapest um, in the summer 2022 for the first time. And you see the heartbreaking memorial of the shoes. Yes, yes. I mean, they did it in front of everyone. They marched Jews to the Danube River and the Divided Buddha and passed, right? I've learned this much. And and tied them together and not to waste bullets. Three together, am I right? Shot one, pushed them in in front of everyone. It's just, so they were certainly culpable. They were so culpable. And we believe we, you know, some things it's impossible to get 100% confirmation, but we believe that my mother's father, that's how he was killed, you know, shot on the banks of the Danube like that. And that is a very heartbreaking memorial. So this conference that we hosted um, in a collaboration with the Tom Lantos Institute was very historic because for the first time um, at a very high level, at the foreign ministry level, a Hungarian um, political leader came and publicly acknowledged this was on us. And we are looking so this year is the 80th anniversary of the start of the Hungarian Holocaust. So March 19th, 1944. Now we're in 1924. So um, I anticipate that there will be commemorative events that the Lantos Foundation will be cooperating um, and collaborating with both the TLI and the Hungarian um, Jewish community. There's a sort of umbrella organization called the Majihis, which represents the Hungarian Jewish community. Um, I mean, there are so many other things I could talk about. One of the initiatives we have for the Lantos Foundation is we have a small discretionary 
um, grant making fund called the Frontline Fund. And a lot of our Frontline Fund grants have been to those um, on the front lines of various aspects of the fight against anti-Semitism. But, you know, it takes different forms. We gave a, an early grant to a wonderful, remarkable woman in Germany who completely on her own, and we sort of sussed her out through news reports, was so appalled when she began seeing anti-Semitic uh, graffiti in her community in Germany. And she just decided on her own. She was already at that point, you know, not a youngster. She was in her, you know, late 60s, early 70s. She would go out every day with um, scrub brushes and a bucket and would scrub off what she could and what she couldn't, she would paint over. And initially, of course, she was harassed by people. She was, she was um, kind of arrested or charged by the German authorities with unauthorized defacing of public property. She won her case, you know, and they realized, wait a minute, this person's a hero. This is not the criminal. She's trying to confront an ugliness that still exists in our society. And eventually, you know, she became better known and, and many people sort of joined her, but we gave her one of her first ever grants. Um, you know, that was just a, one example of kind of, you know, um, on our own, finding somebody who was, as I say, on the front lines, because, you know, we're not a Ford Foundation. We can't give a grant for 25,000 or 50,000, let alone, you know, some of these big grants. We can give small grants. And so we try to seek out those who are who are kind of doing that dining room table activism, you know, who are doing it on their own, who are motivated and at a grassroots level, just like the people who follow your podcast. They're at home. They aren't part of some big, powerful organization, but they want to make a difference. So those are kind of the people we seek out. And um, I know recently we gave... Uh, you know, a couple of grants towards the restoration of the Jewish cemetery in Hungary, which had fallen into complete disrepair. So through our frontline fund in a variety of ways, um, educational, combating anti-Semitism, restoring Jewish heritage, we try to uh, to be engaged there. And it's, you know, you read, you read my father in, can never rest that veneer of civilization is indeed paper thin and you know I, I I truly can't begin to explain to you and your listeners how disturbing profoundly disturbing it has been to sort of have the mask ripped off and to see the extent to which this inexplicable and singly inextinguishable hatred of the Jewish people has been revealed. Since in October 7th. In, in, since October 7th, you know, um, I, I wish your viewers could sort of see the, the front of my house because we have a flagpole in front of our house and it's one of those three-part flagpoles where you have one on top and two on the side. And um, after October 7th, I put up, uh, we have an American flag on top. And after October 7th, I put up an Israeli flag on one side. And we actually have a Ukrainian flag on the other side because I'm very supportive of the fight of the Ukrainian people against Russia. And, um, and 
you know, a lot of people said to me, aren't you a little bit afraid, you know, to put that Israeli flag out there? And I said, no, I'm not. But if I were afraid, that's even more reason to do it. That is even more reason to do it. And I also want to say one other thing, which has been so disappointing and disheartening to me. So just about two years ago when Russia invaded Ukraine, I live in a small um, sort of bedroom community to the capital of New Hampshire. So the capital city is Concord. I live in Bow, a few miles south. And it's it's a like many little towns and cities in New Hampshire, we're about 7,000 people, very close-knit, wonderful community. After the invasion of Ukraine, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but I would say if you drove around Bow, New Hampshire, you would see couple of hundred houses with a Ukrainian flag, or they had wrapped their mailbox in yellow and blue, or they had a sign in the window, you know, we stand with Ukraine, some kind of a manifestation of a very sincere and I think very worthy um, natural desire to support Ukraine. I drive around my town a lot. I think my house is the only one only one that I have seen where there is any kind of a public show of solidarity with Israel and with the Jewish people. That makes me very sad. It makes me very sad that all those good people, and they are good people who were prompted on their own to show their solidarity with the Ukrainians, either because they're afraid or they think it might make them unpopular or because because of whatever reasons, um, my house is the only one I've seen. I hope I'm wrong. But, you know, when I have a few Jewish neighbors, too. Um, so I think that I, I, I'm very sad that my father is no longer with us. Because I really feel as many wonderful people as have spoken out, and there have been. And I'm very grateful, I have to say, I'm grateful to um, so many leaders in Congress. I'm grateful to President Biden. I'm grateful to Secretary Blinken um, and grateful to his predecessor, you know, Mike Pompeo. This is not a political thing. I'm grateful to people on across the political spectrum, let me say, who have spoken out strongly in support of Israel and in support of the Jewish people at this time of great danger and great need. Um, and, and I am, I, I truly am, am gratified by that. But I also feel that um, my father's unique perspective and his unique voice would play such a powerful role in these public dialogues yes. that are going on. And I, I wish she was still with us. I really do. It's very fortunate. Fortunately, we have you and your sister and your children and nephews um, and, yes. and, 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 and nieces maybe who, who um, go yeah. on with uh, the good work your father started and brought to such an incredible level. And um, in this interview, you already gave so much inspiration and, and examples for 
our for to us and to our individual list listeners for individual and, action. You know, we're and as right as we come to the end, Evelyn, was there anything else that you wanted to ask, or can I? Okay, I think that. I was going to give you last words, but I think those last words about your father were so moving that I think we should end there, if that is okay with you. And we thank you so, so much for this really heartfelt interview. We thank our listeners. We, uh, If anyone wants to know more about Evelyn, myself, for our work, you can go to Never Again Is Now podcast, which is on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And as always, we end this with saying, Please, whenever you can, speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.